Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of Colts, Killers, and Cocktails with Jen and Vanessa. Please be advised the following episode is for mature audiences only. We talk about content that may be triggering to some individuals and contain discussions regarding rape, murder, sex, suicide, religious organizations, and disturbing situations. Now, let's get into this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Colts, Killers, and Cocktails. I'm your host, Vanessa. And I'm Jen. And we are back for another episode. I think we're on episode 11 now. 11 or 12. 11 or 12? I think. Something like that. I haven't counted them out, to be honest, but It's pretty sad that we're losing count already. (laughs) It's like our age when someone asks you how old you are, and you're like, uh... I'm in my 20s somewhere. I don't quite know where the pinpoint is, Almost 30, not exactly sure. No, 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 no. We don't want to turn 30. We're never turning 30. That's right. 29 forever. Never, never. So what's your life update this week, Jen? So actually, my twin sister came to see me, and her name is Katie, and she is our guest star today. Good morning, everyone. Excited to be here. I am, like, the biggest fan of this podcast, so. Yeah, so this weekend, it was our dad's retirement party, so we did that yesterday, saw a bunch of family, and what else did we did some chocolate tasting, went around downtown Indy, just got to know the city. Yeah, we went to the Rouse had a couple beers there, saw some live music. We also went to the garage. You guys went to the garage. Yep. Uh, is it not magical? It's amazing. If you guys don't know what the garage is, it's this huge food hall on Mass Ave, and there's like literally every food you can even think of to try. And like during the winter time, this place is going to be popping because it has like all these bars inside, so you can literally bar hop on the inside. Yep. You don't even have to go outside. <laughs> So, it's great. It's great. So, what about you? What's your life update? Um, Not really any kind of updates, but two days ago, I found out that I signed up to run a 5K in two days from now. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the worst. It's it's a uh, post, or not post, a pre-COVID choice. Uh, it's called a taco run. So, at least I'll get, like, margaritas and tacos at the finish line. But, yeah, that's in two days. I have not been running. I have not been training for this. Which, I mean, I guess it's not really a run that you train for, but... 5Ks are still pretty decent. Like, if you haven't been running, like, a 5K takes a lot of effort. It really does, though, and I'm not looking forward to it. But, yeah, so by the time this episode comes out, I'll already run it, already have lived, but still, this is going to suck. So that's my update. Nice. Well, best of luck. Um, Are you ready to get into this week's story? Let's do it. Okay, so this week, I'm going to talk about Roderick Farrell. have no idea who that is. Let's do it. Good. Katie actually watched some of the documentaries with me, so she can uh, comment on this too. But Roderick Farrell is best known for the Vampire Clan in Kentucky. Ooh, we're doing it. Edward Cullen Colt. <laughs> I can't even say it. Team Edward team, all the way. Team Edward. Not Team Jacob no, at no, no. all. Um, okay, so Roderick Farrell was born March 28, 1980, to his mom named Sandra, who had him at 16 years old in Murray, Kentucky. His father was never really there. He pretty much abandoned the family as soon as Roderick was born, so he grew up without a father figure. His mother, Sandra, was also not really present. Again, she had him at 16 years old, so she would pretty much just dump him off on her parents whenever she wanted to go to party, whenever she fell in love with the next guy that she was dating, or just really wanted to go have other plans. I don't understand why parents do that. Like, you can give kids a loving home somewhere else. Like, if you don't want to be a parent, don't be a parent. Especially when she had this happen at 16 years old. I mean, she met her husband in homeroom. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of adoptions. If I were 16 and pregnant, I would have given up for adoption. I'm not going to lie to you. Right. But. Yeah. So for work, she worked as an exotic dancer and a sex worker from time to time. 
And because of this, they had to move around pretty much all the time. They would either live with his grandparents or they would go and live in public housing. So it was really hard for Roderick or Rod, as I'm going to call him for the rest of the episode, to make friends. So he was really, really lonely. So his mom decided to introduce him to Dungeons and Dragons, which I've played Dungeons and Dragons before. It's pretty fun. If you guys don't know what it is, it's like a role-playing game and you have like these different quests and adventures and you can all get together and... You know, um, just well, the best part about Dungeon and Dragons is a tight knit community. I right. mean, people are like best friends as they go through that. You can really develop some strong bonds. Yeah, have you ever seen Stranger Things? That's what they play is Dungeons and Dragons. So you all get together once a week. You're making friends. So it was really, really good for him. So Dungeons and Dragons was going really well, and then she decided to introduce him to Dracula films. Like, who doesn't like horror movies? We all do. I love horror movies. And something called Vampire the Masquerade. If you guys don't know what Vampire the Masquerade is, I looked it up on Wikipedia because this was popular like 20, 30 years ago. And it's pretty much like Dungeons and Dragons, but you're in vampire form. So the players get assigned characters and they're in one of the several vampire clans because you have like different families or clans. And then everyone has their own unique powers, customs, and like abilities, just like in all the vampire shows where like Edward Cullen can like read minds and things of that nature. Wait, what vampire power would you want if you were able to have a vampire power? Probably read minds. I feel like that would be the best one. Oh yeah, for sure. What about you? I'd be all into compelling, but that's a Vampire Diaries thing, so for <laughs> that's all my true. Vampire Diary fans out there, that'd be compelling. <laughs> so he fell in love with the ga- this game. He would read books about vampires, he just got really, really into it, which it sounded like his home life sucked so hard. I don't really blame him for trying to live in this fantasy world. No, escaping to reality. That sounds like a dream come true for a kid in that situation. Right. And just go back to his mom, Sandra. She was a little off. So, for example, she was really into the vampire thing, too. And she actually, at one point, thought that she was a vampire. She got in trouble um, and actually had charges filed against her for for trying to seduce a 14-year-old. Oh, that's gross. Yep. It was one of Rod's friend's little brother's. They found letters of her um, saying, like, really, really sexual things and talking about vampire rituals. For example, she was quoted saying in one of the letters, I longed to be near you for your embrace. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will return to Murray, Kentucky. You will then come for me and cross me over, and I will be your bride for eternity and you my sire. This is nuts. This is a grown woman. And her son was two years older than this little kid. That is just not right. Yeah. So, like I said, he was really into this role-playing game. He's in Murray, Kentucky, which it doesn't sound like there's a lot of things to do in Murray, Kentucky. And he meets this guy named Jaden. And Jaden was really, really into the vampire scene as well. He was a goth kid, which those were kind of outcasts in Murray. He decided to become a part of Jaden's vampire family. So Jaden performed a crossing over ceremony in order to make him a vampire. Jaden took him out to a cemetery and they went under a special tree and then they each cut each other and drank each other's blood. Oh God, you're going to get what hepatitis or something from that. I think there has to be something where if you drink someone's blood, it's not healthy for you, right? Oh, it can't be good for you. It sounds like these kids did it all the time though. So he crossed over, becomes this vampire, they sit in meditation, and then the crossover is complete. 
I mean, out of all the vampire shows I've seen, that is like the easiest way to become a vampire, though. Yeah, usually you have to die. Right. In order to become a vampire. And I'm like, what if you didn't drink enough blood or it doesn't work? Like, Yeah. A lot of technical factors there. (laughs) How to become a vampire 101. Right. But this is the Kentucky style, so. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Southern style. Gotcha. So, like we said, Rod's mom was unstable, and they moved around a lot, so he kept moving from Murray, Kentucky, from Eustis, Florida, back and forth, back and forth. While he was in Florida, he became friends with this girl, and her name was Heather Windorf. The Centennial, which is like a newspaper out there, described Windorf as a trouble Eustis high school sophomore who rebelled against her parents over simple things like cleaning her room and other trivial matters. So pretty much like your average teenage girl that's like, what was me? My life is so hard. I mean, I did the same thing I was going to say. Like. Oh, for sure. Like, Mom, you're making me clean my room before I go out with my friends. I hate you. I'm running away, never coming back. This is abuse. This, this is literally abuse. I'm calling CPS. So while he was in high school, um, Rod was expelled in Florida in ninth grade because he was using marijuana and LSD. He's 14 years old at the time. And then after that, he decided to move on to cocaine and heroin. He was really, really into the drug scene, and so were all these vampire kids that he hung out with. And this is still in high school, right? This He's is in doing high school, yeah. All these drugs in high school. I yeah. can't even imagine that. Like in high school, like I didn't drink at all. Like, no. I was a good kid. I didn't either. And if I don't even remember seeing drugs ever. Nope. We were definitely sheltered, but that's okay. <laughs> they probably were happening. We just, you know. Right. Under our little blankets. So now we jump to 10th grade. Farrell is 15 years old. He moves back to Murray, Kentucky. He's back with Jaden, his vampire family, and all those people. By now, he is very, very immersed in the vampire culture. He starts telling people that he's a 500-year-old vampire, and his name is Visago. Which, if I was going to pick a vampire name, it wouldn't be Visago. I was going to say, that's very unique. Right. Even in, like, all the vampire movies, it's always, like, Edward, Stefan, Damon. They're all really (laughs) simple, easy... Well, and you can't go to Starbucks and have them write Visago on the cup. They're never going to spell that right. Oh my god, they would screw that up so bad. (laughs) So, like I said, he's still part of Jaden's family, but he starts getting really, really weird with his behaviors, which doesn't surprise me with all the drugs that he's using. So Jaden's like, okay, he's getting really weird. I'm going to start distancing myself. And this all happened because one day they were just walking around. Trigger warning for anyone that really loves animals. You might want to fast forward a few minutes. Can I fast forward? (laughs) You cannot fast forward. You're in this. So one day that they're walking and Rod apparently just had this fit of anger come over him and he picked up a kitten and he slammed it against the tree Mm -hmm. and the kitten died. I hate him. So one of Jaden's rules for his vampire family is you can't hurt any living thing. They're a very, very consensual vampire family. And that's the thing. There's a lot of vampires out there that are practicing and they consent. Like, you have to have consent. If you drink someone's blood, you can't hurt anybody. And I respect that. If you're going to think you're a vampire, mm-hmm. that's great. As long as you're in a consenting relationship with whoever you're with, go for it. Do whatever you want. But, yeah. So, that was strike one. He killed this little kitten. Then, later, a local animal shelter was attacked. When the owner came to the shelter in the morning, she saw a bunch of dogs outside. And she thought someone's just trying to, like, free the animals, you know, pull one of those stunts. But then when they were doing further investigation, they found puppies mutilated in the yard. Mm. And I'm not going to go into further detail. Please don't. Because there's no reason to. Nope. But this was the work of Farrell. He was later arrested on charges of burglary, trespassing, and cruelty to animals. 
So we can see that he's starting to go crazier, 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 and crazier. At this time, believe it or not, he had a girlfriend. They were going hot and heavy. They're in love, all of this. But he would still call his friend Heather that he made in Florida all the time. And this was back in the day when, like, you had to pay for your minutes. Um, <laughs> Remember those days? Yeah. You'd call after nine for free. and Right. Well. Yeah. So they racked up a cell phone bill that was over $1,000. Oh Wasn't it, like, a quarter to text somebody back then, too, oh, or yeah. something like that? It was crazy. Mm-hmm. So, Gosh. needless to say... Her parents were very, very mad. And they were like, you cannot be friends with Rod anymore. <laughs> you guys are done. It's over. This made him mad. And he thinks that he needs to, like, rescue Heather. So Heather also told him, too, just to preface, that her family was abusing her. Oh, we don't know if this is true. It might have been in, like, a, you know, woe is me type thing. Mm-hmm. But she led Rod to believe that. So in November of 1996, he decides to act on it. So Farrell brought his 16-year-old girlfriend, Charity Kessie, which if I was going to go rescue some girl, I wouldn't bring my girlfriend with me. Probably not. No, like, hey, this is a girl that I've been talking to on nights and weekends, but we're going to go save her together. Like, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't think that'd go over very well. Not the romantic adventure I would dream of. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a kid named Scott Anderson and another girl named Dana Cooper that was 19 years old, and they drove to Florida to pick up Heather and save her. The plan was for all of them to go rescue Heather and then keep making their way down to New Orleans where it was like more widely accepted to be vampires, which it is like out there you can get like the vampire teeth and like there's my friend went there a couple years ago and they had a blood drinking bar. Yeah. Like where vampires were actually there and you could like drink champagne with blood in it and stuff like that. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, it's not real blood, is it? Or Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I would not do that. I would get, like, a Bloody Mary, be like, yeah, this is blood. Right, yeah. I'm so cool. I'm with you guys. Yeah, but a couple years ago, I went down there, and there was, like, voodoo shops and, like, all kinds of, like, vampire rituals and stuff down there. So it's very um, vampire accepted, I guess. Oh, yeah, especially compared to Murray, Kentucky. Yeah. I'm sure it was, like, their safe haven, you know? Yeah. Their little pilgrimage. So when they get to Florida... Rod performs a crossing over ceremony with Heather. They go to the cemetery, drink each other's blood. Now she's a vampire. I guess they had to find a different tree, but... I was going to say, yeah, the magical tree wasn't in Florida, but... They used a palm tree. It was fine. (laughs) This this works. (laughs) Yeah. So they cross her over, and then they decide to go back to Heather's house because they're like, we need a better car for this trip. And Heather was like, okay, well, my family has, you know, a better car. But instead of her going into the house, Farrell and Scott Anderson go into the house, which doesn't make any sense. If we're going to just steal someone's car, I would just send the daughter in there in order to grab the keys or something. Mm -hmm. So when they walked in, Farrell and uh, Scott had already planned on killing the parents. So they walk in through the garage and then Rod picks up a crowbar. They walk in, and Richard Windorf, who's 49 years old, was peacefully sleeping on the couch. Rod attacked him with a crowbar, and he struck, them, struck him in the head multiple times and continued to strike him until he was no longer breathing. Then, Heather's mother, whose name was Noma Queen, which I think is an awesome name, uh, came into the room, and she had a hot cup of coffee, but when she saw what was happening, she threw it on Rod, like Good trying to do self-defense. Anderson was supposed to take care of the mom. Like, that was his job. But he was in shock, and he had no idea what to do. And he didn't want to go through with it, so he just stood there. 
Rod struck her mom so hard that it severed her brainstem. Oh, my God. Yeah. After this was done, they both performed ritualistic burns on the parents, and Rod carved a V into the dad's chest. Dramatic much? Yep. Then they stole valuables, and of course the car, and then they made their way to New Orleans. Um, Heather's sister, who was two years older, was 17 years old at the time, came home to find both of her parents dead. So she had no idea that... Well, Jennifer Windorf was Heather's sister. I feel So she was, like, at work and then came home and saw both of the parents dead. Heather, at this time, claimed she had no idea what happened. She just thought they were going in, getting the car keys, and then leaving. So she's on her way to New Orleans, not even knowing her parents are dead. Oh, my God. So the next day... After Jennifer finds the bodies and everything, murder warrants were issued for all of the teens. They spent four days on the run from police, and then police found them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. At this time, Rod told the authorities that he was a vampire, and that a rival clan, Jaden's clan, had set them up. Farrell ended up pleading guilty to two counts of murder in the first degree. Later, after pleading guilty, police asked him if he felt bad, had remorse for what he did, and Farrell replied, Why? Killing is a way of life. Animals do it, and that's the way humans are. Just the worst predators of all, actually. Okay, well, that's what distinguishes humans between animals. Right. So... <laughs> yeah, this thing called a moral compass that we all have is supposed to drive you and help you with those decisions. He doesn't Thank- have that, though. He's a 500-year-old vampire, guys. Oh, he, oh that's yeah, that's right. right. That's right. My bad, my bad. Yeah, so he was actually sentenced to death for these crimes. Good, bye. He was the youngest person at the time to be sentenced to death in Florida. Circuit Judge Larry Lockett said during his sentencing, I think you are a disturbed young man. I think your family failed you. I think society failed you. Which, I get that he had a rough life, but I also think that's no excuse for what he did. A lot of people have rough lives and recover from it, you know? They go to therapy, they, you know, make peace with that, Mm -hmm. but, yeah, not an excuse to go out and kill people. I feel like the judge just told him, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed in you. (laughs) And that's the worst punishment of them all. (laughs) So in 2000, he actually had a sentence changed to life in prison because the Florida Supreme Court made a rule that if people below 18 committed a crime, they couldn't be sentenced to death for it because it was cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, I think I've heard of that one. Yeah, so now he's just sitting there. He's still there. He's still alive, just waiting for his time to run out. So can we do the math? How old is he right now? I was wondering the same thing. I think he's like in his 30s now. I wonder if he's still like... Trying to drink prisoners' blood and... He definitely still believes he's a vampire. Like, still wholeheartedly believes he's a vampire. Yeah, you can look at interviews online and it's crazy. He's had, like, pen pal girlfriends, too. He's even been... He's even been married at one point, which I don't understand why Females, please help us understand this. If you wrote to a killer or something, why do you do this? (laughs) And why do you end up marrying them? I don't get it. And he also obtained a wastewater treatment license so he can get a job when he gets out. But, but he's he in life. <laughs> yeah. I think he's just waiting for it to be overturned. Do you know if it's with or without parole? I mean, I do I'm not. guessing without. I'm guessing because... without, yeah, because they were sentencing him to death. Yeah. And actually because of COVID, because all these, like, resentencing things happened during COVID, yeah, yeah, he yeah. hasn't been able to actually go into the court to hear his sentence. Wow. Yeah, because they're doing everything remotely right now, so he can't go in there yet. Scott Anderson pleaded guilty and received two life sentences for his part in the planning of the murders. His prison sentence has been reduced to 40 years, so he's actually going to get out in 2031. That's so soon. Yeah, that's really, really soon. 
And then Dana and Charity made deals for their sentences. So Dana received 17 years, and then Charity received 10. And they're both out of prison now. Of course they are. One's even actually married and has kids and everything. Did they change their identities or anything like that, or...? I tried to find them online. I couldn't find them on Facebook or anything. I mean, I would change my identity. For sure, 100%. Yeah. And then we go to Heather. Um, There was a grand jury that... Do you guys know what a grand jury is? Nope. It's just a jury, isn't it? Is there a difference? I mean, it's like a jury, but it's made up of citizens, and they pretty much decide, like, if you should be charged for a crime or not. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was two grand juries that met about Heather, and they decided not to press her with charges. Why? Because they thought there was enough evidence to prove that she didn't know it was going to happen and that she didn't take planning in the murder. Were these the same jurors on the Casey Anthony case? Right. I want to know this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were in Florida, so... Yeah. Um, don't give Floridians a bad name. We're good people. <laughs> uh, you guys do a lot of crazy stuff, though. We do. That is true. <laughs> Um, yeah, so then after this, Heather actually had to go into foster care because no one in her family would take care of her. Oh, wow. Yeah, so. Man, that's the ultimate middle finger. hmm Oh, yeah. I mean, but you also led these people to come over and kill your parents. Like, right, that would right, be right. so hard. I don't even know how I would be able to deal with it. I mean, I guess I would do the same. I'd be like, no, 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 you can go live in foster care. Like, <laughs> I don't want you to kill me in the middle of the night. Right, yeah. Who else are you going to make friends with? Is it going to be werewolves next? Like, what's going to yeah. happen? <laughs> when they were talking about reducing Farrell's sentence from the death penalty to life in prison, Lake Circuit Court Judge Singularity, it's spelled super weird, so forgive me for the mispronunciation, said he has adjusted to incarceration and he has a good prison record. Just citing testimony that, like, he's been doing really well. However, the continuation of his pattern of fabrication and manipulation of the narratives of his crime in order to serve his own personal interest demonstrates that he is neither changed nor rehabilitated. So, I think it's safe to say that he's going to be in there forever for what he did. Good. Lock him up, throw away the key. Yep, and that's the story of the vampire clan in Murray, Kentucky. That is insane. Isn't there, like, a dating site for vampires now? It's like vampiresmeet.com or something like that. Really? I've heard it, like, in several, like, Like, killer. farmers only, too. Yeah, like, you know? <laughs> like farmers only, Christian mingle, vampires. I think there's a dating site for that. I don't know what it's called. It wouldn't surprise me. Or if they have one for, like, the occult. That's crazy, though. I wonder if they're, like, known. Like, they're, like, the main webpage or something. Right. And what's your blood type? Because I really prefer a positive, so. <laughs> That's, like, one of the that questions. Would the dating profile. It would be. It would have to. I mean, I would go on a date with him, but he's, like, O negative, so <sighs> I just can't do it. Just, I don't date O negatives. Only B <laughs> negative? Is that a blood type? Maybe. <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay. Okay, and for the cocktail this week, we are trying to be a little bit healthier, so um, if you've ever had Traverse City... They're in Michigan, not that far from Indy. They have a cherry whiskey that is amazing, and it's really easy to mix with, like, Coke or um, anything else that you want to mix with that you just want to have a cherry flavor. We mixed it with Powerade this week, and it's really good, healthy. You're, you know, having electrolytes in your system, so you're doing a favor for yourself at the same time. We're getting dehydrated and rehydrated at the same time. Yeah, and the Powerade that we chose was watermelon berry. Not going to lie, I'm not usually a whiskey person, but this isn't bad. Yeah. Like, it's not awful. You can pretty much just taste the whiskey, but this whiskey is actually one that I would just sip on the rocks by myself. So. Right. Well, if I was as fancy as you, I would do that, <laughs> but I'm not. So, yeah, try this out.
Okay, so what are you talking about this week? Well, since you guys are twins. Oh no. <laughs> oh no, not killer twins. Don't give twins a bad name. <laughs> we already gave Florida a bad name. Time to do it to twins. To continue our twintastic theme for today's episode, I want to tell you a story about twins that share the same horrible, evil hobby, if you can even call it that. So let's set the stage and go back to November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving in the small town of Elmira, New York, a population of only 27,000 people today, which I feel like is pretty small for like the busiest state in the nation, basically. Very small. Yeah. Ronald Ripley, a 45-year-old owner of a local store, Salad Master Cookware, a store that sold... <laughs> Wait, Salad Master Cookware? I mean, I would totally go to this store. We only sell stuff for salads. Do you want meat? We're not getting you that. <laughs> <laughs> they sold high-end cooking equipment, and he was closing up for the evening. It was a big enough day as it was, since it was the day before Thanksgiving, and he probably had to get prepared for Black Friday in the next couple of days. But for now, he just wanted to go home, enjoy the night, and the next day with his family, and have a big, profitable day on Friday. Only, he didn't show up for Thanksgiving. He didn't answer his phone. He didn't answer his door. So family members, at their wit's ends, decide to check his cooking store. As they arrive at the store, the door isn't locked. They wander inside, calling out his name. They open the door to the basement, and at the bottom of the stairs, lied the dead body of Ronald Ripley. His front pockets were pulled out. He had gashes in the back of his head and was stabbed in the abdomen six times to be exact. Front pockets pulled out, like almost robbery, or what are they thinking? So that was the police instant thought, that it was a robbery gone wrong. Because, I mean, why else would your pockets be inside out? Exactly. So they're looking around for clues, talking to people, seeing if anybody has heard or seen anything. Eventually, Ronald Ripley's car is found in a really random location for his car. And I say that because there would be absolutely zero reason for his car to be in this location. But it is a location that several other vehicles have been found by car thieves before. And when I say thieves, I only mean two. Specifically, brothers. More specifically, twins! <laughs> I like that unison. <laughs> Robert and Steven Spahalski well-known to the Elmira police, used this place that they had found Ronald Ripley's car as a stowaway spot for vehicles that they had previously stolen. So, who are Ronald and Steven Spahalski? Well, they're obviously twins. And obviously car thieves. And obviously. <laughs> they were born on December 12th, 1954, Stephen was born five minutes before Robert. Do you guys know which one of you were born first? Katie was born one minute before one me. But it minute. was a C-section, so it doesn't count. Still won. <laughs> you won the race. It's fine. Unlike most serial killers, the Spahalskis had a pretty unremarkable childhood. They weren't poor. Their dad had a dairy farm and made a pretty stable upper-middle-class income. They grew up on a big farmhouse surrounded by a big family. There was nothing to traumatize them. And I thought that this was kind of funny and something I would totally do if I had a twin is that they would trade places in school. Yeah, we never did that. We didn't look close enough, though, to be able to get away with that. Yeah. You guys don't think you... I think you guys could have pulled it off. I think you look enough alike. Eh. Maybe not in teenage years. I don't know. I didn't know you as teenagers. Teenagers, I had, like, bleach blonde hair and Katie had brown hair. Oh. You'd have to wear a wig. Yeah. Be a Hannah Montana. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Also in school, as they got into high school, they were really known for their athletic abilities. 
they were both excellent at gymnastics. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Most guys don't get into that, so that's impressive. They don't. And these guys were, like, tall and, like, skinny. Mm-hmm. So I think they were, like, 6'2", 170 pounds, very muscular. Wow. Yeah. But I'm sure, as you can both understand, they were competitive with each other. And I know all siblings are somewhat competitive, but they would take this to the extreme. For example, they would do handstands on bridges that had death-defying falls. If one of them were to make a mistake, they would be flat as a pancake on the ground below. Yeah, wow. I never grew up with that kind of drive. <laughs> you guys, you guys didn't do that? No. <laughs> and for some unknown reason, a reason that we will never know to this day, the two were growing more violent in high school. Remember how I said that their dad owned a dairy farm? It's noted that one day, Robert shot his dad's favorite pig. Pretty upset, his dad was like, why did you do this? Are you mad at me? What did I do? And Robert was confused and responded, no, I wanted pork chops for dinner. Oh my gosh. So literally only thinking about himself. Right. Not caring about what anybody else thinks. He just wants some pork chops for dinner. Well, and as soon as one of my kids like hurts an animal, they're going into some intense therapy. Especially your favorite animal. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not okay. Therapy is just not killing an animal. Uh, shocking. Not really from the path that they're going down. They also got into drugs in high school. And they weren't very picky. They did everything from meth to acid. Acid was one of their favorites. Can't I've say. heard that doesn't do anything to your personality or change anything. I've heard it's a pretty mellow thing. Oh, yeah. It never has, like, long-lasting no, effects. No, 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 no. no, no, no. It doesn't, doesn't destroy brain cells. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing like that. Robert actually was offered a full-ride scholarship to West Point University for gymnastics, but turned it down because he loved getting high too much. Idiot. So that's how much he loved acid. So now, neither one of them really have anything to do. They focus their competition skills to fund their drug habit, and they do this by performing robberies. So they would dare each other to do things all the time. They'd be like, I dare you to break into that house and steal their jewelry. I dare you to steal that car and drive it home. It's basically a competitive game to them. And it was said that they would use their gymnastic skills to, like, climb into windows and get over fences or whatnot. I'm sure it's probably just like the movies. Like, when they do all the weird stuff to get into, like, the museums to do the heist and everything. Like, parkour type stuff. Like, impossible. It's clear that they were in and out of jail during their teenage years because of all this. They also liked to target vulnerable people, which back in the 70s were gay men. Mm, That makes sense. Since, I mean, the gay people, like, they had to go underground to, you know, have intimate relationships with other gay people. So they would try to, like, be like, oh, you're gay, let me hook up with you, and then they would rob them. Right. It's terrible. I know. They're POSs. So back to current events, since the police knew that this was a Spahalski stolen vehicle drop-off hotspot, the police knocked on their door and picked both of them up for questioning. And in the police minds, they're like, Robert did it, he's the more violent one, this will be open and shut. They asked to give Robert a polygraph, and he agrees. He's very cocky the entire time and thought the whole test was funny because he kept saying he didn't do it. And the results of the lie detector say that he was telling the truth. Dang. But not all the way. See, it showed that he showed no deception for doing the crime. But he knew who did do the crime. He knew who killed Ronald Ripley. So police are thinking, well, shit, maybe it's Steven. I mean, who else could it be? The twins always did everything together. They end up wiretapping Steven's phone. And not long after and not long after, they capture Steven talking to someone saying, "If you don't do what I say, I'm going to do to you what I did to Ron Ripley." 
Well, that sounds like a confession if I've ever heard one. Right. <laughs> so police are like, whoa, time out. What did he just say? Well, that was enough for a search warrant in the search, and I have no idea how they found this, but they found Ronald Ripley's keys in their sewer system. Now, that is a good police officer. I would not dare go down a sewage system. No, there's no way. I'd be like, oh, okay, evidence is gone. Yep. <laughs> no evidence. You guys are clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On May 4th, 1972, five and a half months after Ripley's dead body was found at the bottom of his stairs, they arrest Stephen Spahalski and take him in for questioning. And not long later, he confesses. He did it. He said it was a robbery gone wrong, as police expected in the first place. But then, as the most douchiest reason ever, he said that he killed him because Ronald made a move on him. Wait, a move? Like, what type of move? Like, a sexual move on him, because Ronald was gay. While he was getting robbed? Yeah. But he they preyed on gay people, remember? That's right. Okay, never mind. I was about to say, if someone's robbing me, I'm not going to be like, hey. Exactly. What's up? You want to, you know, put your hands <laughs> down my pants? Oh, gosh. Nonetheless, Stephen was only charged with manslaughter and thinking that because it wasn't premeditated since it was a robbery gone wrong and he was only 17 years old at the time of the shooting. But I feel like you can be easily tried as an adult for this. Yeah, because how old were they at the time? He was, he was 17. That's crazy. But I feel like I don't know why he wouldn't get charged for murder rather than manslaughter rather than maybe premeditation. Well, he pled guilty and he was convicted and only got 30 years. Which I think is bullshit, because in 30 years, guess what? Ronald's still dead. And it's clear that he didn't show any remorse. He's quoted saying, I killed him because he deserved it. You know what I mean? He violated somewhere, and time for him to go. That's all. Wow. And Robert, winning the Best Twin Ever Award, backs him up. He says, Stephen killed somebody, and to me, at that time, it was a good reason. It shocked me, definitely. But I still, as a twin, stood by his side. And, uh... You made the call. I stand by you. Sorry about you, but if you kill someone, you're <laughs> on your own. Dust, yeah. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. So, even bigger bullshit than the bullshit charge that he got, Stephen only served four years for Ronald's murder. <gasps> you're lying. He got out and he got free, but we'll get to that in a minute. Before Stephen was once again a free man, Robert was devastated. I mean, this was his twin, his best friend, the guy he was always around. And to be suddenly taken away, that's a punch in the gut. So Robert's like, I got nothing to lose, breaks into a music store, and steals $23,000 worth of equipment. Wow. Well, he gets caught pretty shortly after and gets a five-year prison sentence. And in an ironic twist and turn of events, Robert gets sent to the same prison that Stephen's at. See, I was hoping that they would send them to different prisons, and then that would just be a really F you to him, you know? Yeah. But now he's happy, they're reunited... They start doing their crazy antics again. For example, they'd walk on their hands across the prison floor to heat off the other prisoners. Basically, in prison, crazy beats tough, so no one wants to mess with the hand-walking weirdos. Yeah, I mean, I could see that. I would stay away from them. Yeah. Now, it's 1979, and Stephen's out on parole, like I mentioned a bit ago. So, Stephen is out, and Robert's still in jail. But this isn't for long, because he continued Robert's thievery legacy as soon as he got out, got busted quick for armed robbery, and was sentenced again to 30 years in prison. Same prison? Uh, no, it was a different prison. Good. Mm -hmm. So, Stephen is now in, and Robert actually gets out, because he's done with his five-year prison sentence. Oh my gosh. Robert, over the next decade, continues the twins' legacy. 
He is busted for stealing a $15,000 coin, which, be right back, I'm going to go check my coin collection. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> say what? Yeah, what exactly. What type of coin? I know. Is it a quarter, a nickel, what year? Gets sentenced to jail. Gets out, does an armed robbery. Sentence, gets out, just, just keeps, continues doing this um, bad lifestyle, self-destructive lifestyle. So, as I've said, he was very heavily into drugs, and he got into crack. According to drugfreeworld.org, crack causes a short-lived intense high that is immediately followed by the opposite, intense depression, edginess, and a craving for more of the drug. New Year's Eve in 1990, as Robert is pimping and actually prostituting himself out on the streets, he runs into a friend named Maureen Armstrong, who is currently in the middle of her prostituting shift, and he just starts like shooting the shift with her. After a while, he's like, hey, it's New Year's Eve. Let's treat ourselves. You want to go back to my place and smoke some crack? She agrees, and they smoke about $100 worth. And they hooked up as well, and they're just having a casual conversation. Now, remember how I said crack is an amazing high that falls into a deep depression slash edginess. Maureen asks Robert if he's going to pay her for the sex they just had because technically she's still working. Wait, what? And he's like, uh, no, this was my $100 worth of crack, so you can get the fuck out. Yeah. So Maureen starts having a bitch fit and starts screaming at him. And Robert gets upset too. So upset that he starts strangling her with her straightening iron cord. After strangling her for what seems like an eternity, Maureen is dead. Mm. Robert actually spoke to this eventually. He said that it's a lot of work to kill somebody. It's not like the movies where they're instantly dead. It takes a minute. Sounds like he's so remorseful. <laughs> right? So, remember how I said Stephen and Robert are always in competition? Now Robert is even with his twin, so they both have one murder each. Unfortunately, Robert cleaned up after himself. When police came the next day, there was no evidence to tie him to the crime. Again, she was also a prostitute, so really, they're like, this could have been anyone. This well, is her lifestyle. Yeah. Fast forward to seven months later, on July 10th, 1990, Robert and his new girlfriend, Adrian Berger, are hanging out. She worked in a factory, and in typical Robert fashion, he was living off of her. On this day, they were getting a little frisky, and they start having sex, but out of nowhere, rage comes over Robert, and he starts strangling her for absolutely no reason. And I wish I had more details on this, but it's pretty cut and dry. He just said, I just started strangling her. So he's literally lost it at this point. Yeah, I think the acid... That doesn't destroy your brain cells. Destroyed his. <laughs> At this time, New York was in the middle of a heat wave. So on about day two of her body being left alone in an abandoned house, the smell of death was taking over the outside of the house. Huge horse flies even started to circle the place, and the neighbors started complaining, as they should. That's disgusting. When police arrived, her body was so decomposed from the heat that they weren't able to rule this anything. They couldn't tell what the hell happened to her, but they did know that Robert Spahalski was her boyfriend, and they did know that her his fingerprints were found in the apartment. But that's hard to prove because they probably lived together or had, you know. Exactly, and that was his argument. Mm -hmm. He's like, I was her boyfriend. We were playing dice the other night. I left. She was fine. I didn't kill her. Right. Of course there's my fingerprints everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm Bo. Uh, okay, so... There is no evidence, no crime. Robert got off scot-free once again. So, back to Stephen and Robert's competition. Robert's now winning. Can't let that happen. <laughs> <laughs> On July 12th, 
Let's jump ahead to a couple of months on October 1st, 1991. Obviously, Robert is single, since, you know, he killed his girlfriend. And he wanted to dip his toe into the bar scene a bit. Specifically, the gay bar scene. No! <laughs> so, although Stephen and Robert both preyed on gay men, Robert was, in fact, part of the LBGTQ community as a bisexual. So he meets this guy named Charles Grody at a bar one night, and in typical one-night stand fashion, they leave the bar, went to Charles' house, and had sex. Then somehow, they started shoving each other. Which to me just sounds like a bad, like, drunken fight. Yeah, or like we started playing and be like, stop it. No, you stop it. No, you stop it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Robert actually picked up a hammer and started slamming Charles in the back of the head with it. This was very similar to Ronald Ripley's murder by Stephen 20 years earlier. So it's said that he may have been in... Imitating? Imitating. Why can I say that? (laughs) It said that he may have been imitating this very same murder. Again, Robert covers his tracks. He wiped up fingerprints and cleaned up any evidence that he thought was a possibility left behind. After all, or... And after all that he turns up the heat in the apartment to the max because he's clearly had experience with dead bodies decomposing before. Oh, no. Again, the smell happened, the flies, the whole nine yards. The police couldn't identify the cause of death because of how much it had already decomposed. That is smart, though. You have to, like, hand it to him. I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have either. I would have just left it. Yeah. I don't know. But we're not murderers, so we're not very smart when it comes to this. So again, this is 1991, and I'm not sure if Robert had like a come-to-Jesus moment or as much as you can at this point, but he quits killing cold turkey. I mean, he's still robbing places. Like, for example, he held up a Salvation Army worker at gunpoint. Of all people. Of all people. Don't do the Salvation Army. And he's still living his self-destructive lifestyle. He's doing drugs, pimping himself out, everything, and he ends up contracting HIV. So now he needs a doctor constantly and his crack. He's cold cold turkey on the killings until one fateful day. On November 4th, 2005, his good friend and neighbor, Vivian Irizarry, comes over to his house. It wasn't his girlfriend. He actually had another steady girlfriend at the time. This was legitimately just a friend, and they really just enjoyed each other's company. Robert, or... So they're hanging out, and they choose to get high. Right. And they're sitting at the table smoking some crack, when all of a sudden, the step two of the crack kicks in, the edginess slash rage. Robert looks across the table and sees that Vivian has transformed into a demon. He freaks out, and he's thinking, what's going on? There's a demon in the kitchen. I have to kill it. So he takes a hammer, bludgeons the demon in the back of the head four times. For sure it's brain dead by now, right? So he ties a rope around the demon's neck and then starts strangling it. Even if it was a demon, he wanted to show mercy and get it over with and kill it already so it doesn't have to suffer. After several moments, the demon is dead. But it wasn't a demon. As Robert's vision vision becomes more clear and he comes back to reality, he realized that he just killed his good friend Vivian. Does he actually feel sorry about this one? So yeah, so he's freaking out. He starts crying. He's holding her. He's repeating, I'm sorry, over and over again. He actually took her to uh, the bath and bathed her. Oh, wow, yeah. But then he dumps her body in the basement. So I think that's kind of like a, oh, you feel sorry for her, you're bathing her, and then you're just going to throw her body in the basement. 
So even though the body is out of sight and out of mind, Robert can't stop crying. He can't stop thinking about what he did to his dear friend. He tries to calm himself down by, you know, how any of us would more after crack? murdering somebody. Yeah, more crack. Uh-huh. He buys two $20 worth of crack and began smoking, and he watched a porno. Gross. <laughs> what a great way to decompress. <laughs> after murdering somebody. But it was no use. He had hit his breaking point. He walks into the police station to the smiling clerk at the front desk who says, Can I help you? He responds with, Yes, I'd like to confess to murder. I just murdered my friend. Wow. It's crazy that that's the finally thing that made him feel something. Right. It was one of his friends. Mm-hmm. Officers take not his girlfriend either. That's like, what I was thinking too. Like, it's just a friend. Like, that's how good their friendship was. Officers take him into an interrogation room and, tell, and he tells officers the whole story. He even confesses to the three other murders he committed. 24-year-old Moraine Armstrong, 35-year-old Adrian Berger, 40-year-old Charles Grody, and finally 54-year-old Vivian Arizari. He said that he had to be stopped because apparently he can't be stopped himself. He said, I'm the demon. They weren't. What a full circle revolution for that guy. Mm-hmm. He is charged with four counts of murder. The defense, which you know I love a good shitty defense, was like, well, he was high on crack, so he didn't intend to kill Vivian. Right. It just It was happened. the crack that made me do it. Mm-hmm. Another part of this is that his lawyer said that he was interrogated for 12 hours without access to any medication. Um, he takes medication four times a day. What? Oh, for four. HIV. Well, it said for um, mental health problems, but I'm assuming like HIV must have been a part of it. I know they're not the same, but um, but they're saying basically like this confession may have been not voluntary. Like it was an involuntary confession. He was just saying that. But nonetheless, the jury didn't buy their bogus. After only three hours of deliberation, he is sentenced to 100 years to life for each of the four murders on December 12th, 2006. That's not that long not ago. Not too long. Nope. Steven Spahalski, who is still in prison for the armed robbery charge, was told about this, to which he was quoted saying, Huh, I thought I was the only murderer in the family. If Robert did it, it must have been a good reason. The crack, that was the reason. The crack, and he is still backing his twin up to this day. That's insane. So, Steven actually gets released near the time that Robert gets put in. So now, once again, Steven's oh, out. No. <laughs> Robert's in. They literally keep trading places. But this, but this didn't last for long. Steven was so thoroughly institutionalized at this point, he didn't know how to live on the outside world. So he wanted to get back in prison any way that he could think of. Completely on purpose, Steven goes to a bank and handed the teller a note demanding money. He then just sat down on the bank floor and waited for the police to come. That's so sad. Unfortunately for him, instead of sending him back to prison for the rest of his life, as he had hoped, he only received 300 days in jail. Today, he lives in a halfway house, and he roams the street of his hometown, Elmira, New York. Wow. Remind me to never go visit Elmira, New York. Yeah, that's not... Off my list. (laughs) That's not going to be one of our places that we go. No. Our little vacations. No, no, no. So, for the final results of the twin competition, Robert gets the gold, Stephen gets the silver, Robert won. The two are described as two halves to a lethal hole by Emilra police. Evidently, however, the twins haven't spoken in years. Robert was asked if he could say one thing to Stephen now, what would he say? 
To which Robert responds, I love you, I miss you, come back into my life. Aww. But that is the twinning story of Robert and Steven Spahalski. I love it, but that's insane. Mm-hmm. You don't hear about that many, like, murderer twins. No, or no. Or twins in general, so. Or sibling even duos, even at that point. Mm-hmm. But, you really don't. And there's actually, um, I watched a documentary on this, and I got the free Discovery Plus trial for this, and there's a whole series called Evil Twins. Wow. And this is one of them. So I don't know if the other episodes are about killers. I don't think they are, but even like robberies or, you know, not such great things like rape or something like that, but... About to Now, binge. did they look pretty similar, or were they identical or fraternal? Did they look... They did look pretty similar, like, back in uh, their teenagers, uh-huh. but now, like... Um, Steven has really straggly long hair and then Roberts is like really cut short. They're both super skinny. They're both super tall. So. Land with the drugs. You know, I'm sure that changes your appearance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. So. Well, yeah, I love it. About Great it. story. Don't go killing anybody, twins. That's awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening and make sure you come back and listen next week and make sure to follow us. On Instagram, the handle is Colts, Killers, and Cocktails. If you listen to this story, put it in your story, and I'll retag you in my story. <laughs> we'll have a tag war. It'll be awesome. Tag war, tag war. We'll see who wins. Yeah, and thank Katie for joining us on this episode. Thanks for having me, ladies. Thanks, I love Katie. you both. Yeah, I love you so much. All right, guys, we'll see you later. Have a good week. Bye.